The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In order to thrive in today's competitive business market, you need to constantly adapt to change. In other words, reinvent yourself and your company. Welcome to Business Reinvention with host Nancy Lynn. This hour will have you listening to and thinking like the successful business leaders of today. Now, here is your host, Nancy Lynn. Welcome back to Business Reinvention. This program is sponsored by Change Agent SF Coaching and Consulting Services, and I'm Nancy Lynn. Well, today we're going to take a behind-the-scenes look at the film industry. The industry suffered large job losses during the financial crisis, and um, many banks dropped out of Hollywood after that. Um, but its problem didn't end there. According to the LA Times, movie attendance fell to a 16-year low last year, partly due to higher ticket prices and a weaker economy. And in addition to that, um, the industry faces competition from companies such as Netflix, as more people going online for their movies. And then there is the gaming industry, which also poses threat um, as games become a new entertainment franchise. So increasingly, the Hollywood studios are relying on blockbusters whose budgets are getting bigger than ever, while the number of films produced is getting smaller. So we end up with a large number of creative people who are competing in the market that in some way is getting smaller and smaller. So how has someone with engineering background and no previous filmmaking experience built a viable career in an industry that is going through a tough time? And how is his business model different? Well, that's why we're talking with Jeffrey Travis today. He is a film director writer and a producer. His first short film, What's Wrong With This Picture, won several awards and went on to play at more than 40 film festivals. Here's, he's here with us today to talk about the changes in the film industry and how he has developed strategies to thrive in the industry in transition. Well, Jeffrey, really glad to have you here today and welcome to the show. Oh, Thank you for having me, Nancy. Glad to be on it. Wonderful. Um, so I don't know if you read about this in the news already. Um, Universal President Ron Meyer said at one, one point that, um, quote, unquote, um, we make a lot of shitty movies and every one of them breaks my heart. What do you think <laughs> about that comment? <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of truth to it, you know. Um, <laughs> The, uh, there, there's a, there is a lot of, uh, uh, crappy movies coming out of, coming out of Hollywood, you know, and I, I don't know if he was referring to the, uh, financial performance or to the artistic quality of the films or maybe both in some cases. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think there's, there's, uh, there has been this trend, uh, that I've noticed, uh, you know, where a lot of studio movies are just becoming more about trying to reduce risk and doing the safe bets, you know, the, the sequels, the remakes, the, uh, franchises from comic book stories and some of those films can be really good but i think that also really uh, leaves out a lot of uh, creative uh, sparks of of uh, stories that could be told and and uh, you know some of the movies that have most moved us, some of the originality of films is lost in that uh, studio process of reducing risk so i guess it's also interesting to have someone like you with very different background coming to be part of um, the film industry so how long have you been in the business so I have been a filmmaker for about nine years now. So that's really interesting because um, that means you have gone through two recessions since you started the film career, <laughs> and, yet you managed, right. yeah, and yet you managed to have a thriving career. Is that right? That, that's right. You know, it's funny that the first recession at the dot com tech bubble burst was what got me into the film industry. I was a engineering consultant with uh, working for a, a large software firm at the time as a director of engineering and uh, had a had a pretty good career in moving into uh, management. And during the dot-com bust, uh, I just kind of took that opportunity to look at what I really wanted to do with my life and realized that I'd uh, miss telling stories, uh, 
and I'd always been a writer, and so I, I took that chance to take some time off, learn a little bit about filmmaking, buy a camera, and uh, kind of try to rebuild myself as a filmmaker. So back then, how did the ecosystem of the film industry look like? Who were some of the different players? Uh, sure. So, you know, back then, I think there, the, the film industry was just beginning to change with the advent of digital video, DV. But uh, it was still pretty much the old model uh, right around until I would say around 2001, 2002, which was that the gap that stood between an independent filmmaker like myself and getting a movie seen by an audience was a series of pretty formidable uh, structures and players and middlemen that which it had to go through. First of all, to make an independent feature-length film uh, was very expensive and still is to some degree, but uh, it required teaming up with a studio or a production company that could finance the film, that could provide distribution, that could provide the production services. Uh, it meant working with a lot of the unions that uh, are part of, uh, you know, representing actors and film crews. And so there, there are just kind of a lot of steps of people and, uh, and elements that had to come together in Hollywood. Um, it wasn't really possible at that time, or not very easily, for someone to make a film outside of that system and have it find an audience. So it's kind of impressive that your first film actually kind of cut through that whole system. So tell us a little bit about your first movie and how you got distribution and audience for the movie as a first-time movie director. Sure. So my first film was a very short film. And and like most filmmakers, we start off making shorts because they're just, well, shorter to make and less risky and a good way to sort of cut your teeth uh, as well as being as being cheaper to make. And my first short film, What's Wrong With This Picture, is just a two-minute short film that mixes animation and live action. And it tells uh, really it's just a little vignette about what happens when a young boy draws a stick figure that decides to come alive and is feeling very hungry to eat the little boy's snack. And so this this film, when I when I made it, it was one at the time a uh, shot on digital video, which was a fairly novel technology, uh, you know, in 2002. Uh, most films were shot on film, 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter film, which is very expensive to process. And DV and DV cameras at that time sort of brought a technology to filmmakers that allowed uh, people like myself to you know, shoot things very inexpensively, you know, for, for a few thousand dollars versus hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So I, I shot the film in my kitchen and, uh, using very little crew or, or uh, other equipment. And then at that time, there were a bunch of internet online, uh, film video companies that began to take an interest in showing short films online. Remember, this was before YouTube. So the idea of online video was still fairly new at the time. Uh, there was a company called Adam Films, uh, which I think they may still be around today. They're, they're based out of San Francisco. And they began showcasing short films made from filmmakers like myself that were shot digitally and providing them to audiences. And what they did was, I guess, a, in some ways a precursor to YouTube. They didn't really allow anybody to upload video, but what they did was curate uh, short films that otherwise would – the only way you could have seen my film would have been to attend a film festival. And what Adam Films did is they gave my film a platform and an audience that discovered online and uh, brought in some of my first revenue. I remember getting my first royalty check from them and, and just <laughs> – Wow. <laughs> little thing I made was making money seen by strangers I'd never met. So That's really exciting. So looking back, what do you think made the movie successful? I mean – Besides the fact, obviously, it's very innovative, the fact that you, you made it, you know, using videos and that. Well, I think, you know, like a lot of things, it, it was a combination of timing and luck and talent and, and uh, just, just a lot of things coming together. Um, you know, and I, I mentioned, mentioned that film, you know, is, is one of many that were probably successful at the time. Every every year, there's there's a lot of successful films. So while uh, my experience is, is somewhat unique, it's, it's no by no means exclusive. But I think what made it successful was the fact that we had the combination of uh, sort of this new platform for discovering and watching films that were online and uh, the ability to make a short film in a relatively inexpensive and uh, timely manner uh, without having to go through what we call development hell, which is uh, the typical process for making a film is to pitch it at a studio uh, even once they've agreed to do it, it can take years and years for that script to actually 
be made into a movie when you see cameras rolling. This way, I, I had total control of the process. No, nobody could tell me not to shoot this movie, uh, or I didn't have to wait on anybody or get anybody's permission. And once it was made, I think the, the confluence of these platforms and these companies that were promoting video online is what allowed it to be successful and allowed me to sort of take the next step and get discovered by uh, 20th Century Fox to uh, make a TV pilot for them. Yeah, and it looks like they were not the only one who took notice. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that Netflix also noticed and YouTube. I mean, you know, notice how people are starting to watch videos online, right? So I guess after your first movie, um, YouTube and Netflix came along. And how had that changed the movie industry and its ecosystem? Well, you know, I think one of the things YouTube did was they – they were the first that allowed sort of a much broader base of uh, people to upload content. And I think where YouTube is different than some of these other platforms uh, in, in both good and bad ways is that, you know, anybody could upload anything at all. So you could have a, a video of your cat, uh, but you could also upload a short film. It sort of became this kind of mass platform for sharing video content, which until then, because of, you know, bandwidth limitations, not everybody had broadband uh, at the time, sort of was pretty revolutionary. Um, I, I, you know, I wonder if even the people that made YouTube realized how uh, widespread it was going to become. And uh, you know, Netflix, of course, uh, if you remember, they recall they started off as a DVD by mail service and still are to this day. And, and I remember signing up, and at the time, they, you know, people said, "Oh, nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to wait for DVDs to come in the mail." But what Netflix did, I think, was uh, they, they weren't just eliminating the inconvenience of driving to the store, but they were really making it possible to discover new films that otherwise, uh, you know, you just wouldn't be aware of if you were limited to what's playing at the local multiplex. And so by creating this idea of customizing a queue of movies to watch online that are going to be mailed to you, I think that was sort of another big revolutionary step and kind of put them in the, uh, put them on the map as part of this new ecology of, uh, film distribution. Yeah. So, in terms of impact on new movie makers, um, did they create, I guess, more opportunities for new filmmakers or did, did it have that impact at all or, or more competition? I don't know. Either way. You know, yes, they did. And, and in an odd way, it's, it's, uh, changing so fast that I would say four to five years ago, Netflix was, uh, you know, the independent filmmakers friend. It was like if you could get a film, your film on Netflix, it was a big sign of success. Now it's one of these odd scenarios in which they're, uh, you know, it's still great. It's still great to have your uh, movie on Netflix, but for the most part, they, there's there's been such a, uh, I guess, uh, saturation of the marketplace for independent films in some ways that Netflix is sort of the last resort <laughs> for an independent filmmaker. It, it, I'm speaking purely from a revenue perspective. From a mm, got it. Got it. Well, that's a great insight, and uh, we're going to dig a little deeper after we take a break. Um, and so we're just going to get into the break right now. And just want to remind you, if you want more information about the show, you can follow me at Twitter or go to bizreinvention.com. We'll be right back in two minutes. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lind at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with some joke all how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. 
If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call one 866 472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to business reinvention. All right, so before the show, we started talking about YouTube and Netflix and, you know, some of the cues of all the changes to come to the film industry. So by the time you launch Flatland, uh, which is your second movie, uh, a computer animated movie as well, um, I suppose things were starting to be very different and not only business models in the film industries were starting to change, but video devices also got a lot better and cheaper. And so I, I, I would assume that means, um, you know, easier jobs for filmmakers or lower costs, but then it also means more, um, competition. So what was your business model for Flatland, um, to stand out and was it successful? Uh, sure. So yeah, so Flatland is a half hour animated film that is based on a sci-fi novel. And the business model for that was, you know, we, my producer, Seth Kaplan and my animation director, Daniel Johnson and I, the, the three of us decided that we would try to make this film independently and take it directly to audiences that want to see the film without having to go through uh, a studio or uh, a production company process. And the, the model for that was really, uh, you know, in some ways quite simple is to take advantage of kind of uh, online tools and uh, uh, search engine optimization, uh, Google AdWords, where we basically would advertise the film. We knew that because of this particular movie uh, topic, uh, which deals with mathematics and traveling to other dimensions, that there was for us at least bound to be a built in audience, especially in the educational world, math teachers in particular, uh, we thought would, would like this film. So we, we, basically began to take out Google AdWords as we were making the film and created a website where people could, uh, you know, sign up for uh, updates on the movie or uh, sign out to find out when the DVD would be released. And, you know, in 2006, this was a pretty uh, unusual, almost radical idea because most filmmakers never would do that process themselves. You know, usually that was sort of the domain of the distributor the production company. So you would, you would make a film as an artist and kind of turn everything over to, you know, a little bit akin to a musician and a record label, you know, you would turn everything over to them to do the marketing. So we, we kind of, it was a lot more work, but we took it on ourselves to do the marketing of the film and start that from day one, even as the film was being produced, which took about three years. Wow. Well, kudos to you for taking the risk. Um, and of course, you know, it sounds really great if you can cut through that. And I'm sure the profit margin will be a lot better. But like I said, it's, it must, you know, have a lot of risk involved at the beginning, right? So how did you go about finding investors for that? Well, you know, we, uh, we approached some investors originally and then we decided that, uh, you know, we were in a position to really just bootstrap it and invest ourselves. So my, my two partners and I, uh, invested our own money into the project. We, we had some potential investors interested, but we we were at a point where we just really wanted to get started on making the film. And because it was an animated film, we were able to uh, do a combination of things, you know, put, bootstrap it with some of our own cash, uh, put in a lot and lots of sweat equity. Basically, we got uh, most almost all the cast and crew to work on this on a uh, deferred basis where we offered them uh, back-end royalties in exchange for the work that they were going to do. And so, you know, the people working on the film obviously were taking a big risk as well, putting in uh, a lot of time without any upfront compensation. Uh, but, you know, it's really paid off. I mean, uh, you know, I have to say that the film's done very well since then. And, and uh, you know, to this day, five years later, people still get their uh, royalty checks. And it's uh, it's been from a financial point of view, uh, really paid off. Uh, you know, we didn't know that at the time if that would work or not, but uh, we're glad it did. 
Wow. So tell me a little bit about this distribution model. Um, was it really just online marketing that really helped you um, to drive a lot of viewers? Or was there anything else that was also very helpful and effective in driving viewership or brand awareness as well? Yeah, you know, there was. And I think uh, it's what uh, my producer likes to call affinity groups. So uh, you know, if we were trying to market Flatland to the entire movie-going audience in the world, uh, you know, we would just be lost in the noise, right? There's, uh, you know, a thousand independent films made every year on average, and maybe maybe more today. Uh, you know, we don't have any kind of significant marketing or advertising budget. So how do you how do we, how does our film stand out? How do we even find people that would even know about the movie? Um, so, you know, we found one big affinity group, which was mathematics teachers. Now that's, that's not the only people that watch our movie and they're, they're not even, I think half of them now, but at the time we knew that math teachers would love this film for several reasons. One, it's, it's a half hour movie that is family friendly, uh, can be shown in the classroom, has some educational content and value. And two, there just really was not almost any science fiction movies out there that dealt with mathematics. Uh, you may have heard of, you know, STEM, sort of the, the, uh, impetus to push science, technology, engineering, and mathematics and education. And that right. last bit of it, the M was, was really missing. Uh, if you took a look at the catalog of, of entertainment and films out there, lots of movies that deal with science, a lot of documentaries from National Geographic or Discovery Channel. Uh, but as far as mathematics, there was really almost nothing. And so when we presented our trailer to the film, we, sent it to uh, several organizations, but one of them being the National Council of Math- Teachers of Mathematics, NCTM. They really embraced the film. They got excited about it. They started promoting it to their members. In fact, uh, uh, last year I was asked to be their keynote speaker, and I, I, I got to speak to 12,000 math educators and uh, show you know clips of the movie. And uh, they, they just really got excited that someone was making a film that they felt was for them. So that sort of snowball into a lot of these uh, educators, you know, getting their school districts to buy the movie and buy site licenses for the film. And uh, that, you know, over time brought some awareness to even internationally. We had, for example, the Ministry of Education of uh, South Korea has licensed the film for their entire country and all their schools. And uh, a lot of it is through word of mouth, a lot of it's online marketing. It was sort of a slow burn. But I think finding that first sort of affinity group and people that would champion the film was the key for us. Wow. It sounds like you really got unconventional distribution channel for your film and was very successful at that too. Um, so are there other distribution models that um, have been, you know, maybe adopted by other filmmakers um, that you can share with our audience? Uh, absolutely. You know, and film distribution is probably the most talked about topic for us independent filmmakers today because it is in such a state of flux. Um, you know, it's probably uh, akin in some ways to the uh, dot-com bo- boom, you know, in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, when a lot of other industries, like, say, the travel agencies were changing drastically, you know, when people were able to their travel online instead of using traditional travel agencies. And, and film distribution is a little bit like that. It's it's changing fast. A lot of the players are uh, coming and going. A lot of new ones are rising up that six months ago didn't even exist. So, it's a little bit hard for me to generalize uh, because of the, the fast changes. But some of the other models, I'll mention one is is typically talked about. It's called hybrid distribution. And hybrid distribution refers to the idea that you do some amount of self-distribution, like we did with Flatland, and then some amount of selling the film to a distributor. And the reason that both are possible at the same time is that in the past, a distributor might have – uh, if they wanted to pick up a film at all, they would have required all exclusive rights for, you know, a territory. For example, if we wanted Lionsgate uh, or New Line Cinema to release our film on DVD, they're they were the only ones that could do that. Uh, if if we signed a deal with them, nobody else could sell the DVD. Under a hybrid distribution agreement, one might be able to sell their DVD or sell online views of their film. Uh, but then also have a distributor do it at the same time. And it's sort of this idea of like, look, we, we as filmmakers know uh, we have a core audience that we can reach that perhaps a studio necessarily won't reach, but then a, a bigger distributor or studio might be able to reach other players. And so by doing both, we, it's called a hybrid distribution model. Mm, so it sounds like there are a lot more different channels, you know, if you include the online channels as well. So they're willing to kind of divide and count, conquer now. Is that kind of what it is? 
Uh, yeah, to some degree that that's true. And I think also there's there's sort of a realization. What's par- part of the equation here is the fact that uh, if you ask any independent filmmaker who has signed a distribution deal and you ask them how they fared uh, financially from that, I think nine times out of ten you're going to get a, a fairly bitter response. Um, you know, the, the independent filmmaking distributors are traditionally uh, not, not good companions, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that. Uh, there's there's been a lot of shady Hollywood accounting that goes on, um, a lot of you know expenses that distributors have have taken and put against the film, and often the the artist is the last person to see any money from a movie. So you'll have a a film that may do at the box office you know twenty million dollars, and the writer director may not see any money from that. Um, and so a lot of filmmakers ch- have chosen to go the independent route and the direct distribution route, partly in response to Sort of this idea that you know we're just going to get screwed if we if we sign any of these deals. Now some distributors have started to see this, and I think have started to change some of the the practices that have happened in the past to have more transparent bookkeeping and accounting, and um, you know work out things that uh, benefit everybody. Mm. And are there also new filmmakers that are starting to kind of promote their movie through events? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So. I want to mention one of the new players. In fact, I'm going to a screening tonight. There's a there's a new player called Tug.com. I, I don't have any affiliation with them, but I'm really curious about what they're doing. Um, this T-U-G-G.com. They promote uh, films as events. And so the way Tug works is basically if, say, I as a filmmaker would like to have my uh, a screening of my film for our viewers in San Francisco uh, or New York or L.A., I can set up a screening at theaters for them and Basically, what they'll do is they'll provide a platform for people to order tickets ahead of time for the the film event. And if enough people order tickets, there's sort of a tipping point at which the the screening happens. It gets booked, and some revenues are split. Um, because even even putting on a screening in a multiplex costs a, a certain amount of money. And for some filmmakers and certainly some distributors, there's always that element of risk. You know, if if we spend all this money, you know, booking the film in a theater, are people going to come? Uh, with some of these new players and platforms, they've sort of taken that element, that question, or that unknown out of it by saying, well, let's find out. If enough people buy tickets and sign up ahead of time, then, uh, you know, the film will happen. And if not, it doesn't. So. Oh, that's awesome. And it also sounds slightly um, similar to Eventbrite for, I guess, business events. So that's that's very um, interesting concept, actually. Um, so just to wrap up this segment, um, last question for you. What advice do you have for new movie makers who are trying to cut through the clutter? I think that, you know, I would say go in with your eyes wide open. Talk to as many people as you can. Uh, and I would say for filmmakers, especially artists, you know, to not be afraid to Learn the business aspects of this to take control and take charge of their own film, you know, because no, no one's going to care about your movie as much as you do. Mm, so important. All right. Let's take another break and we'll continue with this discussion when we come back. And again, you can follow me on Twitter for more information about the show or write a customer review for us on iTunes where you can download our podcast. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, 
career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. So, Jeffrey, now you're working on um, Dragon Day, which is the new movie and a very different story. Um, what was the genesis of that? So yeah, Dragon Day is going to be my first feature length, uh, film. It's live action, not animation. And, uh, it's a story about an American family that is trying to survive after the United States, uh, is, uh, invaded by cyber, through cyber attack, taking over the country when the U.S. defaults on its debt in the near future. And the idea, the genesis of that movie was basically a story that came to me after I was uh, driving in a car, kind of thinking about some of the things that I had uh, read in the news that worried me, uh, the amount of debt that our country's taken on, which is at $16 trillion and counting. And I also had read uh, an article the week before about how much uh, sort of undercover and unre- unreported cyber warfare is going on, uh, you know, where countries are basically, you know, using cyber attacks to infiltrate computers, shut down systems. It's interesting just today in the, the news that's been on the cover of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, there's, there's this big inquiry into these, uh, two Chinese telecom giants that are, I guess, being barred from doing an IPO in the U.S. because of, uh, they say, they basically claim they're a threat to national security. So kind of combining those two ideas of saying, well, what would happen if our country somehow defaulted on its debt to China and what if they decided to retaliate? And what would that look like from, you know, the perspective of a, uh, one family stuck in a small mountain town. So you are obviously very talented and very versatile as well. And uh, I sense that each one of your movie is very unique on its own. Um, some directors have a particular style and you're kind of moving from, you know, documentary, animated movie, sci-fi and a thriller. So what has allowed you to create movies that are so different? And is there a common thread, if any? <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a good question. I ask that myself sometimes. You know why? <laughs> From I, I, I think I, you know, probably easier for people other than myself to sense what the common threads might be. I, other than I, I, you know, I love to make films and stories that just really uh, interest me. I, I would say that one possibly common thread I am seeing, even with Flatland and with uh, Dragon Day, is you know both of them are science fiction movies, or or could you know somewhat fall under that category a little broader than that, but they also kind of deal with, uh, sort of a big social commentary ideas, you know, so flatland is they, uh, touches upon the ideas of our, you know, place in society and, and, uh, questioning authority and, uh, with the nature of reality, you know, and, and sort of how much have we, uh, been deceived by what we believe is true. And Dragon Day obviously explores on some very, you know, timely, some might say controversial topics, uh, related to, you know, sort of the nature of, of the reality we live in now, which is sort of under this cloud of debt and, and, uh, perhaps these stealth cyber wars going on that we don't even, uh, you know, aren't quite ready to acknowledge yet. So, um, so sort of big contemporary ideas and science fiction seem to keep drawing me in. Yeah. And, you know, I guess for creative people, it's very exciting. Um, I could imagine, you know, to be able to work on so many different topics. Um, any thought on the advantage or disadvantage of having different durate of movies? I mean, is it more challenging to build a personal brand that way or do you see that as advantage? You know, that's a good question. I, I think in some ways it probably is a slight disadvantage to not have uh, a very easy box to put me into as a director. Um, you know, I think if there are, there are directors that say, oh, you know, 
and, and Hollywood often wants that. You know, they want a director. So yeah. This guy, this girl, she does uh, films, uh, you know, like, for example, um, Catherine Bigelow, who directed The Hurt Locker, you know, is, is coming out with this movie about capturing Osama bin Laden. Well, that they obviously chose her for that film. Oh, she's she's a director who does war action movies that happen in Afghanistan or Iraq. It's that specific. You know? um, I, I think. It's just easy for producers to think of directors in, in those boxes. I think for me, you know, I, I just have to not worry about that. It's, it's, I, you know, there's, there's an importance to building your brand, but I think for me, it's about showing a body of work. And in, in some ways, I think the films that, that, you know, will do well will probably tend to become what I get noticed for. You know, I have, I have several other short films that, I made as kind of experiments, more experimental short films, and and those you know aren't as commercially uh, viable as, as some of my other works. So, I think it's more about having a whole body of work and and you know let, letting that sort of uh, be presented to an audience. I think about uh, directors like um, you know Sidney Lumet, who has a has a pretty broad range, or even directors like Clint Eastwood, you know, who have have a pretty broad range of the type of films they do as well. Yeah, Ang Lee, I can think of as well. Um, and, and it looks like following your passion has worked really well for you so far. So I guess it's working. Um, and it looks like, though, for this particular film, it's taking you several years to finish. Um, what were the challenges? You know, the, the biggest challenges, uh, I think, were the fact that we were trying to tell a story that – you know, when you hear the premise, you probably think a, 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 like a big blockbuster movie. Um, and so the, the story would eat very, very easily lends itself to, for me as a director, imagining something that could have cost $100 million to make. Uh, since I didn't have $100 million, I had to figure out how I could tell this movie on a tiny, tiny fraction of that and still have it be very compelling and feel very real. Uh, Wow, um, you're getting me curious about it. So, um, any uh, clue that you can share with us? Like, how did you eventually come up with a way to tell the story without um, costing your arm and leg to produce it? So, in, in filmmaking, you know, some of the, the most expensive are uh, how many locations you have. Moving around a film crew is very expensive. Uh, obviously, having uh, famous A-list actors is very expensive and having a lot of uh, visual effects or big crowd scenes can be expensive. So I had to find ways to basically eliminate that from, from the script. And so what I, what I decided to do is say, Hey, look, what, what if we told this story of, of kind of a, a big invasion of the United States, but rather than us see it the way a big Hollywood blockbuster might tell it where, you know, we go to Washington, D.C., and we see, you know, New York City uh, skyscrapers, you know, destroyed and kind of go all over the country. What if we just stick to this one family who is taking a uh, vacation in a small mountain town? They're in a cabin out kind of out of nowhere, and they just happen to be there on the day this happens because, uh, you know, uh, there were people when uh, Pearl Harbor happened that were just out in the middle of nowhere too, and they they eventually started finding clues that we were at war. So I, I thought it would be really interesting, and in some ways more uh, compelling and frightening uh, to sort of have this see this through a keyhole almost. You know, they they see these planes go down and crash, and then they see a second one go down and crash, and then the power's cut off, and they can't figure out what's going on, and. Uh, you know, slowly they, they sort of learn the truth that, uh, you know, that the country's been taken over and, uh, water and food and, uh, law and order are, are disappearing fast. And so by staying in one location, by keeping it contained and by working with some, uh, very talented but relatively unknown actors, we were able to keep the budget way down. Mm. So it goes back to your, um, previous advice, um, that you mentioned, um, which is, you know, how critical it is to have a combination of creativity and business savvy. Um, so I think that was just another great example. So this time around, do you need outside investor for your movie? We did. Yes. This time we did. You know, uh, the, the budget was, you know, we don't really disclose the exact figure, but it, you know, it was, it was under half a million dollars. And so, you know, I help finance part of myself. I always believe if, you know, if I believe in something, I will also invest in it. But, you know, to, to raise the money, we approached several investors and we have, we have a team of investors that signed on to do the film and, uh, got behind it and, you know, made it possible for, for us to shoot it. Similar to Flatland, we, we did, you know, have a lot of people that worked on the film that took, uh, you know, a big pay cut or deferred some or in some cases all of their, 
their compensation to you know uh, see this movie get made and and uh, you know see if they, they will do well on the back end from it. So. Yeah, so a little bit of startup concept right there too. Um, so tell us a little bit about the investment community for the film industry. Um, are they typically, when you say investors, uh, are they usually like angel investors, individuals who are wealthy or are they VCs or are they, you know, um, you know, coming from different backgrounds of their studios? I, I don't think there may be VCs that invest in film, uh, not, not the ones I've met. Uh, you know, film is, is, it, it seems to be a very, very risky, but even more so than a high tech startup uh, venture. Uh, you know, most of the investors in film, industry, I think there's, it's hard to categorize because there's kind of all over the place. There's many kinds, but I'd say most of them are angel investors, um, typical, typically people that, you know, have some, uh, funds that they want to invest. And I think I would say a lot of film investors invest not only because of the potential financial rewards, but frankly, because the you know appeal of uh, becoming an executive producer and and a film that's going to be shot in Hollywood is is appealing. You know, there's a certain glamour to it. Oh, obviously, yeah, definitely. Being it happen. I think uh, from a from a financial point of view, investing in film is 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 a, is a, it's one of the riskiest form of investment that are out there. Uh, you know, most independent films never make their money back, and uh, you know, on the flip side, the ones that do well tend to do very very well. And, you know, can in a period of two or three years return, uh, you know, returns that I think would uh, make anybody else, uh, uh, even hedge fund managers, jealous. So it's, uh, it's probably about risk tolerance and, and uh, finding the right person that believes in the project and believes in the filmmaker. Mm, fascinating. So how and where do you look for your cast? Is it different from how it was done by or I mean, how it is done traditionally by the studios? Yeah, so uh, you asked about looking for the cast, is that right? Yeah, I just wonder, you know, for a smaller budget and independent movie makers, do they do it differently than the big studios? The process is actually not that different. You know, when the probably the biggest difference with Dragon Days, we didn't use a casting director, and um, which which in some ways uh, I regret because it was so much work to not have a casting director. But uh, a casting director's job is typically to help. Uh, you know, sort through the thousands and thousands of potential actors that might be considered in the role for the film. And so, uh, you know, he or she, it's usually she, but, uh, he or she will, uh, basically gather a lot of headshots, find a lot of ideas for actors for the film, uh, present them to me as a director. And then based on those, we, or, you know, select a group of those to audition for the film. And based on those, we select a smaller group to come in for a callback and sometimes a second callback down to whoever's cast for the role. We did the same process for Dragon Day, except that it was my producers and I doing all that work. So we had auditions and we had callbacks and, uh, you know, had people come in for second. Very interesting. Well, it looks like we have to take another break. Um, so just um, please stay tuned and we'll be back after these messages. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. So, Jeffrey, before the break, we talk a little bit about the investor community for the film industry. Um, what are different exit strategies available for investors? How do they get their money back? Sure, that, that's a great question, and probably every investor, I'm sure, asked that at least asked that right up front with with any film. You know, it's interesting because with a film, unlike say a, a high tech startup or company, uh, the the way the exit strategy or how much to get your money back is a little different. You know, you, you don't. You don't buy typically into a company. Uh, you buy into a film. And so the film is really its own property. And that property, uh, much like uh, a real estate or, say, the oil or mineral rights underground for a property, is something that is speculative but then can have tons of potential value and royalties that continue uh Possibly for years or indefinitely, depending on how well it does. So typically what happens for an investor is that once the film is produced or once they invest, you know, the film may take anywhere from, you know, maybe as little as two years, but it could be up to five years before the, the, the first sort of revenue start coming in. And those will happen when a, uh, you know, sales begin to happen either through a distributor or through, uh, foreign sales or through online platforms. And as soon as this happened, you know, typically investors are, are paid back first to recover all of their funding. And then after that, the profits or royalties are split between the creative producers who made the film and the investors. And so the investors basically get to, you know, uh, who invested in a film that did well and is a DVD cult classic. You know, I, I would have loved to be an investor on The Princess Bride, for example. You know, <laughs> one of the most rented and bought movies of all time in the last 25 years. Um, how about international markets? Do they offer new opportunities for independent filmmakers? Absolutely. In fact, international markets often will be one of the biggest uh, opportunities for an independent film. It depends on the genre of film. So, for instance, a drama does not do very well overseas unless it has very big name actors. You know, uh, if you have Brad Pitt in your film, then yes. But uh, what? The foreign markets usually are interested in are what we call genre pictures, so uh, action movies, adventure movies, science fiction, thrillers, uh, horror films. And these, even if they don't have big-name actors, although that certainly helps, can often do very well. In fact, they can do much better overseas uh, in terms of uh, uh, revenue than they will do in the U.S. So, for instance, with Dragon Ball, we uh, have been approached by a number of foreign sales agents who are companies that basically broker – selling the movie and its rights to all these different countries. They'll take it to a film market like Cannes or like the American film market, which is coming up here in L.A. Uh, at the end of this month, and meet with buyers from you know India or China or uh, the U.K. and France and uh, basically make a deal to sell the film or sell certain rights to the movie for a certain number of years in that territory and then kind of pool all those uh, monies together, and that's basically your foreign sales income. And is the impact on the studios, and I mean the major studios in Hollywood, different? Um, because I also know that more and more countries are trying to develop their own movie industries, and I just wonder if that's a threat um, to the Hollywood studios at all. Question: I I don't have a good perspective on whether that's a threat to the studio system. I do know that a lot of countries are developing more of their own cinema. And to me, that's a very positive thing. I, I think that uh, you know the entire world, but even American audiences have nothing but to benefit from uh, a maturation process of foreign cinema. Um, you know, I, I know some of the, my, my favorite films I'll often go see at the art house are foreign films, Iranian uh, cinema or uh, French cinema. So in general, yeah, I'd say that's, that's true. You know, the more film gets out of a country, probably the less they're going to have a need to fill in those slots from Hollywood films. Having said that, I don't think Hollywood films are in any danger of going away anytime soon. Um, there's sort of an insatiable appetite overseas for especially Hollywood blockbusters. And, uh, you know, uh, American cinema is sort of 
will still dominate in a lot of parts of the world. Um, here in, in the U.S., they're still trying to figure out how to make it for lower sales at the box office and then also lower sales from DVDs. And they try to do that through digital distribution, but Hollywood-backed initiatives like Ultraviolet, which offer digital copies of movies stored in the cloud, haven't really picked up the scene. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, what is missing? You know, it's it's tough because DVD revenues have uh, declined dramatically, you know, as well as box office receipts. And we're seeing this trend where the 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 price, the, the amount of money people are willing to spend on movies seems to be going down. There, there seems to be a, a larger trend at which when something goes from the physical realm, uh, you know, something with atoms, something you can hold a touch and feel to something purely digital, the perception is that you shouldn't pay that much money for it, if anything at all, you know, uh, for a lot of uh, younger People, it's sort of like let's just find us online for free on BitTorrent. You know why? Why would we ever pay for a movie? And that's a that's a really big challenge. I think a lot of artists are still figuring that out. Uh, as filmmakers, you know, I tend to look at a little bit at the music industry and see what they've done. And you notice that a lot of independent artists will offer their songs for free. Uh, you know, sort of not trying to necessarily count on a lot of revenue from selling digital songs, but then create events where, hey, you can download my album for free, but come check check out this show where I'm at. And uh, since you're going to pay $25 for a ticket to see me, I'll, I'll make up that revenue that way. And I think for fil- the film industry and independent homes, we're still figuring that out. You know, what is the way to uh, get, you know, make it viable and sustainable when the average price uh, paid for a movie keeps going down? Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what the new business model will look like. Um, so I'm pretty sure that a lot of people in the audience will love to see your new movie. Um, when is it going to be out? Well, we don't have a release date yet. We're hoping the film will be uh, available in the spring or summer of 2013. We're finishing up post-production now, and uh, we expect to be playing at some film festivals in the spring. Awesome. And then so in the meantime, if people want to find out more information, is there a website that they can go to? So we are uh, showing the trailer right now and, and organizing a crowdfunding campaign to help us with the final post-production of the film. And you can find that on Indiegogo.com slash Dragon Day. That's Indiegogo.com slash Dragon Day. And we also have a website, DragonDayMovie.com. Awesome. And I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun talking with you. Well, and I want to thank Los in the audience for tuning in today. Please make sure to join me again next Monday for another great show. Thank you and take care. We hope that you've enjoyed Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. Please join us for another edition of our groundbreaking program next Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll find the inspiration for change over the coming weeks.